you got a Bible, you can open up to 1 Peter chapter 1, where we're going to be this morning, and we'll be in verses 10 to 12 is where we're going to read together. Uh, we've been working our way through this little letter in the New Testament, uh, taking a look at our sojourn status, our exile status, kind of our resident alien status as Christians, a part of a greater culture. And this morning we come to 1 Peter chapter 1, and we pick up in verse 10. Where Peter writes these words, he says, Concerning this salvation, the salvation he's just spoken of that will be revealed to us in the last days, the salvation that, the out, the, that our faith is obtaining, concerning this salvation, he says, The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I grew up on boats um, in my childhood fishing the waters of Toledo Bend, a big massive reservoir that separates the state of Texas and Louisiana. So I grew up fishing on that lake on my dad's boat, my grandfather's boat, my uncle's boat, um, which quite humorously were at one point all one and the same. Um, and that boat has since been passed to me. Uh, but on every boat that I've ever been on, whether it be a personal boat that someone owns or a charter boat that might be taking folks out into uh, the Gulf or into the bays or in different parts of bodies of water, every boat has an anchor. And that anchor serves a very particular purpose. That anchor is there so you can drop the anchor when necessary to hold you steady when the winds begin to blow against you. The anchor functions that way. Many of the anchors you might find on a, on a bass boat have kind of a little clamshell shape to them, and you drop them down, and as they fall to the, to the bottom or the bed of that lake, uh, they're shaped the way that they are so they would fall into the sediment that is settled there on the bottom of the lake, and they would collect that sediment up on top of the, that kind of clamshell shape, and it would add weight to it to hold you firm. So when the winds begin to blow in this particular spot that you want to stay in, you can drop the anchor, and it will hold you steady. No matter how hard the winds blow against you, it will keep you from drifting. It will keep you from floating downstream or to parts of the lake that you don't have any desire or intention to head into. There's an anchor on every boat and there's an anchor in all of our lives. Listen, we talk, we've talked on, over the course of the last several weeks about how it is that the winds of our culture begin to blow around us. And sometimes those winds are not just swirling around in the culture. Sometimes, you ever found this to be true? Sometimes they're swirling in your heart. Sometimes they're swirling in your mind every morning when you wake up and every night when you lay your head on the pillow. Sometimes it's not stuff externally that's swirling around you. Sometimes it's internal. There's an internal wind that seems to be howling and pushing you in a particular direction. So it may be outside influences and external conditions that you might be in that cause that wind to begin to howl in your heart. But sometimes the wind's blowing just as strong inside as it is outside. And so the question is, whenever the winds of our culture and the winds of our heart begin to blow against us and they want to cause us to drift away, what is it that's going to hold us firm? What is it that's going to keep us in a fixed position and a fixed point of faithfulness to Jesus Christ? No matter how many cold shoulders we may get from those in the culture around us because of our convictions. And no matter how intensely hot the furnace becomes, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who had to walk through it. No matter how intensely hot that furnace becomes for us, what's going to keep us fixed? What's going to anchor our lives? 
So when a gunman walks up onto a community college campus and asks people what religion they are, and when they stand up and they say, I am a Christian, and then he proceeds to pull the trigger and put them to death by shooting them in the head, what's going to cause you to stand up and say yes? Right? In that moment. What's going to cause you to say, yes, I, I am a Christian? What's going to anchor you and fix you in that moment? Or what about maybe not so drastic? What happens whenever people that you thought you could count on, they were going to be in life with you? People that you thought you could count on and they abandon you and they walk away in your greatest hour of need. What's going to keep you from drifting? What's going to hold you firm? What's going to fix your position? What's your anchor? See, when those winds begin to blow from out the outside and they begin to swirl on the inside, what's going to keep you from drifting away from faithfulness and fidelity and love for Jesus Christ? We live in a culture that says, listen, what's going to keep you fixed is how you feel. It's kind of your emotions. And some of us think that what the anchor for our souls are are kind of the feelings that we have whenever we went to that last worship concert that we attended that had all of our favorite artists and they sang all of our favorite songs. And so we just kind of, you know, basked in this wonderful emotional moment of how we felt in that moment is what's going to keep us fixed or how we felt at camp or how we felt in that service or how we felt in a particular instance or a moment. Some of us are banking on our feelings to keep us anchored. But listen, nowhere in Scripture, nowhere in Scripture does it say, listen, what's going to keep you anchored, what's going to keep you in a fixed position when the winds begin to blow is how you feel. But it's what you know. It's what you know. And it's what you see. See, Peter's writing into a context where he's saying, listen, the winds are blowing, and there's various kinds of trials that you're encountering. Because God has caused you to be born again to this hope that's coming one day in the future. And you're looking forward to the future to have joy right now in the presence to awaken that. And hope and joy, we've talked about these last several weeks, are kind of the fuel that propel us forward on this life of exile that we're living. Or this life of sojourn that we're living. As we're waiting to be uh, transported to our homeland one day. Because our citizenship is in heaven and not here on earth. Hope and joy are the fuel that are pushing us forward, propelling us in this kind of exilic existence that we have. But what is the anchor that keeps us from drifting? And Peter comes to talk about that anchor here in verses 10 to 12. He says, there's an anchor that keeps you from drifting, and it's not how you feel, but it's what you know, and it's what you see. Peter says two things to us that will keep us in a fixed position, no matter how hard the winds are blowing or swirling, and it's this. He said, you've got to understand, first of all, the historicity of the gospel. And second of all, you've got to behold its beauty. So first of all, understand the historicity of the gospel. If you look at what Peter says in verses 10 to 12, Peter says this. He says, the Christian gospel is not advice, it is news. It is not advice, it is news. And this is what separates the Christian gospel from every other religion on the face of the earth. This is one of those distinguishing features about what it means to be a Christian that contrasts with every other adherent for every other religion on the face of the earth. Because Christianity is not advice, it is news. It's not a collection of philosophy, but it is history. It's at the very center of history. This is how the apostles presented the Christian message in their day. They didn't show up and say, here's lots of advice on how to live. They weren't life coaches. 
But they were heralds. They were reporters. They were declaring news and announcing something that had taken place in human history and then showing the logical implications and outworkings of that. See, the the historicity of the gospel is one of the things that keeps us anchored, and it's one of the things that distinguishes, distinguishes Christianity from every other world religion. See, every other religion is centered upon the teachings of a particular individual. For instance, you can go to the teachings of Confucius, or you can go to the teachings of Buddha, or you can go to the teachings of Muhammad, or you can go to the teachings of Gandhi, and they may form for you a philosophic framework for those who adhere to them, but there's a stark difference and a a violent contrast between building your life on a philosophic framework and a historical fact. Between building your life on a philosophic framework of all this body of teaching, this body of information, and a historical fact, and what makes Christianity unique and different is the, the history and the narrative that it asserts about what has taken place in time and space. This is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he's writing to the church at Corinth, and he says this in verses 14 and following, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we have testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. See, Paul says, listen, Christianity is absolutely dependent upon history, unlike any other world religion. Because you can go back to the teachings of all these founders of these other world religions and whether they ever lived and did what the, the, the histories tell us that they may have done or the mythologies tell us what they may have done. It doesn't really matter because you have their teachings and your teaching, their teachings are what you're trying to follow. They built a philosophic framework for your life and you're trying to bend yourself to those particular teachings and live in accordance with them. But Christianity is absolutely distinct so that Paul could say, if Christ has not been raised from the grave in time, in space, in human history, then the whole foundation of Christianity gets cut off. And he says, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. Listen, we should just close up shop and go eat early. (laughs) That's what Paul says. And so Peter, the same Peter who writes this letter, this is why on the day of Pentecost, when he stands up to preach, listen to what he says. He doesn't stand up to preach at Pentecost and say, men of Israel, when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. He didn't stand up and say, men of Israel, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He doesn't stand up and say, men of Israel, consider the ant and how it prepares for the future and saves. A penny saved is a penny earned. He doesn't stand up and give advice on the day of Pentecost, but Peter stands up in Acts 2 in verses 22 and following and says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God and crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter doesn't stand up and say, hey, listen, you should forgive others because you're only hurting yourself when you don't. He doesn't stand up and present a philosophic framework, lots of advice for how to live. He stands up and like a reporter on the six o'clock news, he announces something that has taken place in time, in space, over the, in, in, the human, in human history that's at the center of human history. 
That's how the apostles present the gospel. As something that has taken place. That's an historical fact. So that no matter how you feel about it, it has happened. Now listen, there's many of us who want to divorce the teachings of Jesus from his person. And they go, man, well, listen, Jesus taught all these great things about how you should live. They want to go to the Sermon on the Mount. And if their whole understanding of Christianity comes from the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus teaches us to do, right? Plucking out our eyes and cutting off our hands and all those kinds of things. And yet, they want to divorce that from the historical person of Jesus who lived in our place, died in our place, and was raised from the grave. We want a religion that's filled with morals and ethics instead of coming to the terms with the historical person and claims that he made and as the apostles talk about him. Listen to what Peter says in the text. In verse 10, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired for carefully. Listen to what they were looking for. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Peter says the prophets understood themselves. Even before Jesus comes, when the prophets are prophesying, when Ezekiel is writing, when Isaiah is writing, when Jeremiah is writing, they understand themselves to be writing and predicting predicting and prophesying about a person who would come at a particular time in human history because they were looking for the who and the when. They didn't know the who and the when. They had descriptions of what this man would be like, of what this man would do, but they didn't know who he would be or when he would come. And so they're inquiring into the person and the time, the person and the time, the person and the time that would take place in human history. The prophets are looking for that. That's what they're searching for. That's what they're inquiring about. So the prophets understood what they were writing was something that would transpire on the pages of human history, not just be a body of teaching that you would say, here, go do this. But something would happen in human history that would change the trajectory of where it was headed. The Old Testament prophets knew that someone was coming at some point, but they didn't know who and they didn't know when. And then Peter goes on to say, what has been announced to you, the prophets predicted it, but what's been announced to you is the who and the when. That's how they present the gospel. The prophets were looking for the who and the when, and the apostles are declaring the who and the when. The the prophets were looking for the time and the person, and the apostles and the preachers are declaring the time and the person. Because Peter says, in essence, he says, what the Old Testament prophets were predicting, now the New Testament apostles and preachers are declaring, announcing, and proclaiming. As something that happened in time and space. In fact, Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 says, For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see. They were waiting for the time and the person, time and the person, time and the person. And they did not see it and hear what you hear and did not hear. In other words, Jesus says they were looking for the time and the person. And the time and the person is me. It's here. It's now. They were looking for it, longing to see it. You're laying your eyes on it. They were longing to hear it. And you're listening to it right now, Jesus says. So they're declaring news, the historicity of the gospel is one of the anchors that keeps us from drifting in the midst of the winds as they blow externally and as they swirl internally. 
the fact that it happened. And it's at the very center of human history. What the prophets predicted, the apostles are proclaiming. But what is it that they were predicting? What is it that the apostles were proclaiming? Listen to what Peter tells us. He says, what news were they reporting? Right? Because, because preachers and apostles in the New Testament were much more like a, a reporter on the 6 o'clock news than they were a therapist. Okay? They weren't showing up to do therapy. They weren't showing up to give kind of psychological framework for why things were happening in people's lives and the way that they were happening. And they weren't giving you counsel or advice on how to do things. They were showing up and they were saying, this is what happened. This is what took place. This is what transpired. But what were they declaring? Listen to what Peter says in verse 10 and 11. He says, concerning this salvation... When the prophets announced, or, or they searched, what were they searching about? They were searching about the grace that was to be yours through the sufferings and glories of Christ. This is the news that they were declaring, that God's grace was coming to human humanity, humankind, to men and women through Jesus' sufferings and his glories. This is what they were predicting, and this is what the apostles were announcing. And you go, well, what difference does that make? What difference does it make whether or not I just think it's a philosophical framework or if I think it's actual historical fact? It makes all the difference in the world. All the difference in the world. And here's why. Because if you're going to root, if you're going to root, if you're going to try and anchor your life in the face of gale force winds with your feelings, with your experiences, with your emotions, about how you feel about something, What's going to happen from today to tomorrow, from this week to next week, from this month to next month, is those feelings are going to change. Those feelings are going to change, but historical facts, they don't. They don't. Right? No matter how you feel about the Louisiana Purchase, <laughs> I feel pretty good about it. No matter how you feel about the Louisiana Purchase, Right? The United States of America purchased the Louisiana territories from France in 1803. It's a historical fact. No matter how you feel, uh, no matter how you feel about the collapsing of the Twin Towers, it was a historical fact that on September 11, 2001, those planes, or two, yeah, 2002, those planes flew, 2001, those planes flew into, I'm, I'm losing it, flew into those buildings and they fell to the ground. No matter how you feel about that, it happened. Right? No matter how you feel about the elections of certain presidents, the passing of certain laws, those things are historical facts. No matter how you feel about the advent of the internet, it was a historical fact. No matter how you feel about the end of segregation, it was a historical fact. No matter how you feel about the collapse of the Berlin Wall, it finally came down in 1992 for, for, for good, it was a historical fact. Those things are facts. They don't change. And no matter how you feel about them, you can't make them change. Your feelings will change and they will shift and they will, they will ebb and flow, but facts never change. And the way the apostles present the gospel is not as, hey, you should feel really good about all this advice that I'm giving to you, but they're saying this is what took place in human history to the very center of human history, and no matter how you feel about it, it will not change. 
See, what's going to cause you to say yes when somebody says, what religion are you? Or are you a Christian? If so, stand up. I'm going to put a bullet in your head. It's not because of how you felt when you sang that worship song three weeks ago or at camp this summer. But what's going to say, cause you to stand up and say yes is because you're absolutely persuaded of the historicity of the gospel. That Jesus Christ is God incarnate in the flesh that who's come down to bring grace to you through his sufferings and subsequent glories in his resurrection, ascension, and one day in his return. Because you're absolutely persuaded of those historical facts. You say, yes. Yes. So what does this mean? A few things that it means before we move on to point number two. A few things that it means. The first one is this. I said it before. New Testament preachers are like news anchors rather than therapists. And that means this, that self-help teaching that's filled with all kinds of advice about what you must do will never really have the power to change your life. See, if people stand up in front of you and say, look, this is, this is, this, here's all the advice about what you should do in order to fix these relationships, in order to manage your finances, in order uh, to, to have a long, fulfilling, you know, self-adjusted children, relationship with, long, fulfilling relationship with self-adjusted children who are part of, a, a vital part of, of society. Self-help teaching really doesn't have the power to change because it's telling you what you must do. It's telling you where you must go. It's telling you how you must act if you want to see these things. But true Christian preaching doesn't start with what you and what you must do. It starts with God and what he has done. It's announcing to you something that's taken place. That's what preaching is. That's what true Christian preaching is. And so I'm not here every Sunday to be a life coach. But I'm here every Sunday to make an announcement, to declare a historical fact that's taken place in a person and in a time to give you news. See, if a king goes off to war and he fights against another king, and over the course of that battle, if he loses that battle, he's going to send back to his home country delegates or military strategists, military advisors, and they're going to gather around board tables, right, in conference rooms, and they're going to try and put together a strategy about how to now go defeat this person, this king that has defeated them. And every other world religion functions that way. It says, hey, listen, here's, here are the tips, here are the tricks, here are the tactics that you need in order to manage your life better. And certain strains of self-help teaching in Christianity function that way as well. They say, here are the tips, here are the tactics, here are the tricks of what you need to do to manage the stresses of your life in a more efficient manner. But if that king goes off to war and he crushes, he crushes his enemy, he doesn't send back military strategists. He sends back heralds who come back and say, the king has won. Live in the freedom that he has accomplished. They don't come back and say, here's what you must do. They come back and say, here's what God has done. Now, Christianity is filled with teaching. It's got some advice to it, but that advice is always rooted in the announcement and whenever you have the advice without the announcement, it leaves you broken and crushed because you realize, I can't do those things on my own. I'll never be able to forgive others. I'll never be able to give without my right hand knowing what my left hand is doing. Apart from that announcement of what God has done. 
telling that story of grace coming to you through the sufferings and glories of Christ. See, the pulpit is a place. The pulpit is a place where week after week after week, somebody stands up and tells you that story again. And I don't know about you, but week after week after week, I need somebody to tell me that story. Week after week, I need somebody to tell me the story of what God has done to rescue me from my condition. Week after week, I need somebody to tell me the story of what God has done to remedy my situation, of what God has done to give me hope, of what God has done to awaken joy, of what God has done to anchor us in truth. I need somebody to tell me that story one more time. Every week, Because every week the winds are blowing. If you don't understand the historicity of the gospel and see it as the apostles present it, if you just see it as some kind of self-help mechanism to help you accomplish and achieve your dreams and goals in life, then when the winds start to blow and there's something else that will help you accomplish those dreams and goals in life in a more efficient fashion, you will drift. But not only do you have to understand its historicity, a little tongue-tied, but you also have to behold its beauty. You have to behold its beauty. You've got to see that the gospel is news, it's not advice, and also that it's not just useful, but it's incredibly beautiful and captivating. Now, how is it that beauty, we might understand a little bit how history keeps us from drifting because facts don't change even though feelings do, but how does beauty keep us from drifting? How does seeing the beauty of the gospel keep you from drifting? Let me ask you this question. Whenever you behold something that's beautiful, you typically find it captivating and you're drawn to it, don't you? Those of you who are married in the room, you, those of you men at least, women, you probably didn't find your husbands very beautiful. Um, but ladies, or, or good dudes, you probably were drawn to her because there was a certain beauty about her. And you were captivated by that and you were drawn to, to that as a part of the attraction that you had towards your wife in those early stages of the relationship. When you find something that's truly beautiful, you don't want to turn away from it. You want to keep staring into it. You want to keep looking at it. You want to keep beholding it. Right? When you hear a song or you, or, or, or that tells a, a captivating story or you read a good book that you just can't put down and you read it over and over and over again because there's a certain beauty about that book. There's a certain beauty about that literature. Or you watch a movie that's compelling and captivating and you watch that movie over and over and over again. Why? Because there's a certain beauty to the way the story unfolds and the way the cinematography captures that story as it unfolds. We're captivated and drawn to beauty and we can't take our eyes off of it. And listen to what Peter says in verse 12. He says, It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Things into which angels long to look. Peter says that angels who are created beings who dwell in the presence of God, they have a longing and desire and craving to look into the unfolding of redemptive history. And that word that he uses to describe that is not a past tense. In other words, like when the prophets were predicting all these things that were going to take place in the future, the angels were going, man, I got to see this. 
It's a present tense verb. And what that means is this, is that even after all those events have transpired in human history, the angels are still astonished by what's taking place. And they're still beholding the beauty of the good news that's been announced of grace coming to men and women through the sufferings and glories of Christ. They're still gazing into that. They have an obsession with it. In fact, that word literally means they're captivated by it. They have a lust for it. They have an obsession with it. They can't get enough of it. And they keep looking into the gospel. Angels long to look into God's work through Jesus Christ to save men and women from every nation, people, tribe, and tongue. And they look into it with an incredible curiosity. And that raises the question, why? Why would these these finite beings who are more like us than they are like God because they're finite created beings who have been attended to the throne of God since their creation, who have been basking and beholding in the beauty and glory of God in all of his radiance, in all of his majesty, in all of his unfilteredness. They've been there and seen it. Why would these beings long to look into the gospel even here and now today. What is it that's hooked them into that story? Some of you probably know that experience of being hooked into a story, right? With the advent of Netflix. Some of you binge watch all weekend series, episode after episode, season after season, the entire series over the course of a 48-hour span, you get hooked into this particular series. Why? Because there's a compelling story that captivates you and just draws you in. You go, I don't know what's going to happen next. And then when you, when, when you see what's going to happen next, you go, oh, man, I can't believe that. Right? Because the characters, as the characters develop and the plot unfolds, it hooks you in because you don't know what's going to happen and you're astonished by what does. And these angels, these angels who long to look into the gospel, it's very much the same way for them. They're not omniscient, so they didn't know everything. They didn't know how the story was going to unfold. And they, they, they perhaps even still don't know how it all is going to unfold one day. So they're watching the redemptive drama play out before their eyes, and they're just as captivated by it as people who are glued to a series on Hulu or Netflix because they don't know what's going to happen and they're astonished by what does. There's a certain beauty to it that draws them in because they can't fathom what God has done. And perhaps a part of the reason they can't fathom it is because when you look at the Bible, right, there is no salvation plan for fallen angels. When angels fall, <laughs> into the pits of hell. When humanity falls, God rises up from his throne and he does something. Dorothy Sayers was a British novelist who wrote a series of mystery books uh, between World War I and World War II over in England. And she was one of the first women to be granted a degree at Oxford University, pretty prestigious place. Her father was a pastor, and in her writings you can kind of pick up some of the notions of Christianity and the Christian faith as they come out of that. Uh, she wrote a lot of murder mysteries starring this amateur sleuth named Peter Whimsey. And so Peter Whimsey would investigate these crimes. Um, and he was a very, his character as it developed over the course of the series of the books, became a very eccentric fellow 
who kind of fell into these crimes and the investigation of what took place, kind of like the game of Clue, right, sitting there playing, right? It was, you know, Professor Plum in the kitchen with the candlestick, okay? And so he's solving all these murder mysteries as they're going on around him. Um, but his personal life was a mess. It was a wreck. And Sayers gave him a great deal of development in the, over the course of these novels because he was kind of the star of the book. And so he was a very flawed person, but people were kind of drawn to his characters. Perhaps they maybe saw a little bit of themselves and his flaws as they unfolded over the course of those pages. But at some point in the course of the series of those novels, Dorothy Sayers wrote into the novels, she introduced a character named Harriet Vane. And interestingly enough, Harriet Vane was depicted as a murder mystery writer who was educated at Oxford. Same as Sayers. She had an on-again, off-again relationship with Whimsy through several books of the series as they unfolded. And she kind of at first finds him a little bit strange and eccentric, and she turns down his proposals to marriage on several occasions. But by the end of the series, or toward the end of the series, one of the later novels, she accepts Whimsy's proposal. And the subsequent novels to that, they kind of reveal this blissful honeymoon that they experience together, a long season of domestic bliss and so it seems what takes place over the course of the development of Whimsy's character is that Sayer's character, right, Harriet Vane, comes into and kind of rescues Whimsy from all of his flawedness, from all of his failures, from this life of isolation and loneliness and separation from human contact. Whimsy's life was rescued by his marriage to Harriet Vane. And it's incredibly intriguing that the character that she writes into the story is her, a murder mystery novelist, educated at Oxford. So in essence, what she does, what Sayers does, is she writes herself into the story to rescue the character that she's fallen in love with. She writes herself into the story to rescue him from his isolation, to rescue him from his loneliness, to rescue him from his flaws and failures. And the angels, they're long to look into the good news of the gospel because in the gospel, we have a God who does the same. A God who creates man and woman in his image. And whenever those, those first, our first parents, Adam and Eve in the garden, whenever they reject God, and they say, I'm going to trust you, God, that what you say is best. I'm going to do things my own way, not the way that you've prescribed. It sets into motion the course of redemptive history in which God himself would write himself into the story to rescue those that he's created. And the angels who have existed for many millennia stand back and they go, my mind is blown. And they keep looking into it because they find it to be so captivating and so beautiful. See, if the gospel is just a set of historical facts for you, it's only a part of the anchor. But when those historical facts of what God has done in human history get set ablaze in your heart by the same Holy Spirit who predicted that they would come, by the same Holy Spirit who empowered the apostles to announce that they had come, when those set of facts get set ablaze in your heart and you see that God has written himself into the story, into the narrative of history in order to rescue those that he's created, 
and that you are one of them. When those facts get set ablaze by the good news of God's unwavering commitment to those that he has created. And you look up and you go, my mind is blown. And whenever you find the historicity of the gospel to be so compelling and the beauty of the gospel to be so captivating, it's like standing on the front deck of that boat and dropping that anchor 70 feet down until it hits the bottom. And no matter how hard the wind blows, it holds you fast. Let's pray together. Father, we come this morning thanking you for what you've done, not for what we can do. God, I pray that you would help us to see over and over and over and over again that Christianity doesn't start with what we do, but it starts with what you have done. It starts with grace coming to us through the sufferings and glories of Jesus Christ. And that news being announced and declared and proclaimed, even as Peter does at the day of Pentecost. So that our anchor isn't in our feelings and how we feel day to day whenever we get cold shoulders, whenever the temperature in the oven that we're living in today gets turned up and persecution gets hot and it becomes uncomfortable and painful in the midst of the various trials that we encounter in this life, that we, are, we have something that is, 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 is secure in the bedrock of the historicity and the centrality of the gospel that is at the very center of human history so that we would not drift no matter how we feel from day to day. And God, I pray that you would make me and any other pastor who stands in this pulpit faithful to be a herald, to be a reporter, to be someone who comes back and says, the king has won. Live now in the freedom of the victory that he has accomplished. And God, I pray that we would see, not only today, but every day, as we open the scriptures, that we would see the beauty of the gospel unfolded on its pages, that we would read Genesis to Revelation as one big story of what you have done, are doing, and will do to rescue those that you've created. So that we, just like the angels, would find it to be the most compelling and captivating and beautiful story ever told. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.